And with that, we're going to jump into our message. We're in our main message series going through the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in order that the events happen, because we want to see, understand, and know who Jesus is for ourselves. Not what other people say about him or what the rumors are about him, but who he really is in his word. Last week, we saw Jesus heal a woman who had been spiritually oppressed with a back illness. She was hunched over for 18 years, and we got an incredible lesson from her because she was not bitter toward God. She was not angry toward God. She kept coming to church. She kept getting together with other believers to glorify God because she understood this is not heaven yet. This life is not everything as it should be. There is pain and difficulty in this life, but on that day when she walked into church, Jesus was there, and after 18 years, that day, she was healed, and it was such a good reminder to all of us to keep going, keep praying, keep getting together with other believers, because you never know when Jesus is going to step into your situation or my situation and bring healing. This week, we're going to do something incredible. We are going to go through an entire chapter a whole chapter. We're going to make it all the way through John chapter 9. And I'm really excited about that because last week when we ended, Jesus was making his way through different villages and towns. He was on his way to Jerusalem teaching as he made his way there. This week he's reached Jerusalem and he's going to perform a life-changing miracle for a man who was born blind. And before we do that, we tend to sort of hear this thing and go, oh, okay, cool. He's going to heal a blind guy. That's great. I want to encourage you to just stop and really contemplate this. We're going to find out this man is at least 30 years old. He's been born blind. He's never seen anything, ever. He's lived his whole life that way. And we're going to find out there was a real social stigma that came with being born in any sort of handicapped or disabled way. A very, very difficult life is what this gentleman has had. Most biblical scholars agree that his story takes up the whole chapter, not just because it's an amazing miracle, but because this man's story will parallel our own story of salvation. So it's not just the story of this man, it's your story, it's my story as well. And if you're thinking, man, I already know about salvation, give me something new, let me just remind you of this. I want to encourage you to remember there's nothing greater we have to talk about. There's nothing greater we could sing about. There's nothing greater we could revisit, study, or ponder than the saving work of Jesus in our lives. There's nothing greater we could discuss today. And the Lord asks us to take communion every time we get together like this because he never wants us to forget the incredible work Jesus has done for us on the cross. So as we dive into John chapter nine, I want to invite you to turn your heart to a posture of worship, a posture of thankfulness, and just let's study this together with a real attitude of gratitude as we're just reminded what Jesus has done for us and that our story could have been very, very different were it not for Jesus. So let's jump in. John chapter nine, verse one, it says, now as Jesus passed by, he saw, go ahead and underline, he saw a man who was blind from birth. This is the man who's going to represent you and I. And the first thing we notice, you can write this on your outline, is he was born unable to see the light. He was born unable to see the light. It's not that he could see light and he chose not to. He, he just couldn't see it. He had no idea what it was. And I had you underline he saw because Jesus was the one who saw him. He was not even capable of seeing Jesus because he's blind. Just as you and I are born in the darkness of sin, it's all we've ever known and it's our default state. We have no idea what we're missing when we're born in darkness. And then I also want us to notice that this man doesn't approach Jesus, as we said, because he can't even see Jesus. Write this down. Jesus reaches out to the man. Jesus is the one who reaches out to the blind man. The blind man doesn't reach out to him. Jesus reaches out to the blind man. Without the intervention of God, you and I can't even recognize our blindness. And even if we do, we have no idea what to do about it. Our only hope for being healed and made whole has always been the compassion and mercy of Jesus, him reaching out to us. Please understand, it is not a case that Jesus meets us halfway. It's not a case that we reach out to him and he reaches out to us and we meet halfway. It's Jesus going all the way on our behalf. How far from heaven to earth 
through death on our behalf. He goes all the way on our behalf to reach us in our condition. This man initiates nothing. Jesus initiates everything. In verse 2 it says, and his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? As we mentioned last week, this was the predominant view among Jews at the time. It was so mainstream, it wasn't even considered impolite for them to have this discussion right in front of the blind guy. I mean, he has to be thinking, I'm, I can hear you, I'm blind, I'm not deaf, I'm right here. And they're in front of him and their attitude is, let's have a theological discussion, Jesus. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? And this reveals a belief in two main ideas. We touched on this a little bit last week. Firstly, I would describe it as they have almost a belief in karma, the belief that what goes around comes around. And you encounter this, whether you realize it or not, with people who say, well, you know, I think that in life, if you're generally a good person, things work out. And that sounds good, but it's the position of someone who's never thought through the full implications of what they claim to believe. Because if you believe that if you're a good person and things generally work out, what does that mean if you are a person for whom things are not generally working out? What's the implication? That you're not a good person. That's why things are not working out. You sort of had it coming. You were assaulted. Well, what did you do? And if you want to see the full ugliness of this idea at work, you can visit Tibet. And here's why I point this out. Because in the Western world, we have sort of a romanticized view of Buddhism. We view Buddhism in the Western world as, oh, this is a very Zen, peace-loving, oneness sort of belief system. It's very beautiful, meditational. But Buddhism believes in two things. It believes in karma and it believes in reincarnation. And it actually teaches that you work out your karma across various incarnations. So in other words, when you die, you will be born as something again for another life after this. But what you are born as will be determined by your karma, by the good things or the bad things you've done in this life. So you go to Tibet, and here's how this belief plays out. Anybody who is born disabled or handicapped is spat upon, is kicked, is verbally and physically abused, is treated like a dog, because Buddhism believes that by treating them that way, you are helping them work out their karma. You're helping them pay for their sins so that they can have a better life next time. That's what Buddhism looks like when it's fully implemented. And I always encourage you, when you're viewing or studying any other religion, what you wanna do is try and find a place in the world where the teachings of that religion are followed to the strictest letter of the law. So if you wanna understand Islam, you need to go and look at countries where the letter of Sharia is followed to the letter. Then you will understand Islam. If you wanna understand Buddhism, you need to go and look at a place like Tibet where it's fully implemented in society and then you can evaluate a belief system accurately. You see, the Jews didn't go that far but they still held the belief that this man was blind because he had sinned or his parents had sinned. And you might be thinking, well, how can it be his sin if he was born blind? Well, it's quite simple. The rabbis taught that you could sin in your mother's womb. So they looked at the story in Genesis 25, some of you will know this, where there are twins, Jacob and Esau, who are wrestling each other in utero inside their mother, Rebecca. And Rebecca wonders, what's going on? And, and the Lord tells her, oh, they're fighting against each other in the womb. So the rabbis decided, based upon this text, this is a crazy interpretation, but they decided that it was possible to be doing things before birth that you shouldn't be doing. You could be a bully in the womb. You could have a bad attitude in the womb. And that's why the disciples think, well, you know, this guy was probably a horrible sinner in utero. He probably gave his mother a terrible pregnancy, and that's why he was born blind. It was and is a horrific belief system. But the second thing it shows, it shows a belief in a vengeful God. And the belief was different to classic karma because it took it a step further. You see, they didn't just believe that what goes around comes around. They believed that God will make sure that what goes around comes around. So not only will there be some sort of natural consequence, but God will make sure that you pay for your sins. So when they saw a person like this who was blind, they were saying, this is the judgment of God. You know, it's not our job to have pity on him or anything like that. He's being judged by God, and who are we to question the judgments of the Lord? These two ideas together caused great pride in those 
who were blessed in this life. And it also caused great hopelessness in those who were born into difficulty in this life. So what does the Bible actually say? Well, the Bible does indeed say that the sins of the father are passed on to the next generation, but not because God makes it happen, because it's a natural consequence of sin. We all understand, whether we like it or not, that if someone has alcoholic parents, they have a much higher chance of becoming an alcoholic themselves. We all recognize scientifically and psychologically that if a person is raised in an abusive home, there's sadly a very good chance, a much greater chance that they will grow up to be abusive themselves. That's what we're talking about, the sins of the father being passed on to the kids because sin can also be a learned behavior. That's a biological and spiritual truth. But to fully clear up the matter, God actually spoke through the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel and he said this, let me read it to you. Then came another message to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. So this was a proverb that was popular at the time. The idea is what the parents have done wrong, the kids are going to pay for. And God is so annoyed that they use this as a popular saying to explain bad things happening to people that God is speaking through a prophet and he's saying, why do you guys say this? Stop saying this. He says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. What? You ask. Doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No. For if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. I don't think God could be any more clear on that. But sadly, the people still didn't get it, and hundreds of years later, they're still asking who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So verse 3, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So the first thing Jesus does is explain in this case, this has got nothing to do with sin from this guy or his parents. Now it doesn't mean that sin is never the cause of difficulties we face in life. The Bible's very clear that sin leads to destruction and if you sin in an area of life, you're sowing bad seeds in that area of life that are probably gonna bring about bad things. But that wasn't what was going on in this case. And then Jesus says that this man was born blind, that the works of God should be revealed in him. See, this is a great little test to see if you're actually paying attention. Because if you read that and go, oh, okay, then you're probably not paying attention. Because Jesus has just told us something that's almost disturbing. He's saying God allowed this man to be born blind so that the story we're reading in John chapter 9 could take place at this moment in time and be recorded in our Bibles for the rest of future history, for the purpose of God's goodness and grace being revealed. And it's very reasonable to have the thought, isn't that kind of mean? I mean, this guy went through almost a lifetime living in darkness and pain so that Jesus could use him as an object lesson? And I always wanna be as honest as possible when we read things like this in the Bible and tell you, yes, that is exactly what Jesus is saying. And here's what we need to remember as we pondered recently. This life is a grain of sand compared to the beach of eternity. And when you and I arrive in eternity in the presence of God, we will never regret anything that God allowed to happen to us in this life that will benefit us for eternity. If in heaven God tells you or I, yes, I allowed that to happen, during your life on earth so that I would be glorified through you. So that as you kept worshiping me through that difficulty, people would notice and it would be a testimony to them. I allowed that. We will never, ever object to God when we arrive in his presence in heaven because we will see how that temporary pain for a very short amount of time in our earthly lives now benefits us for eternity. Eternity. In fact, we'll be forever grateful. If you could talk to this blind man right now, you know what he would tell you? He would say, listen, he said, I was just an ordinary guy, but what Jesus did in my life 
has been told over and over to millions and millions and millions and millions of people. God has used it to encourage a countless number of people. And he's used my story to reveal his kindness to so many people. And he would say, if you could see how that has benefited me in eternity, how I've been rewarded, what Jesus has done for me, I wouldn't take back a single day of being blind. He wouldn't take it back. And so I want to encourage you and I to always remember and always have faith that even when there are difficult things in our lives that God allows, that Romans 8.28 really is true. He's causing all things to work together for our good. And there are some things that we might think are happening to us that are really happening for us. The hardest thing to realize is that we really only have a very small part of the picture. We cannot evaluate what God is fully doing till we arrive in his presence, till we arrive in eternity. There are a few different interpretations out there about this text. There are some teachers who who will try to say, well, it's not really saying that, but you really have to really bend and twist and distort the text to make it say something different. I think that we only struggle with what Jesus is saying because we're looking at it from an earthly perspective not from an eternal perspective. And I don't know about you, but I always want the Lord to do what is going to benefit me most for eternity. That's what I want. I want the Lord to keep doing that. You mean I might be in the dark for 30 years as to why God is doing something? Maybe longer. Maybe you'll die without knowing it. But here's what I can guarantee you. Son of God, daughter of God, When you arrive in the presence of God, you will immediately understand why you went through that thing. It won't be Jesus sitting down and saying, let me explain. The Bible says, just as we are fully known, we will know fully. As soon as we arrive in the presence of God, we will have instant and immediate understanding of why all of those things happen. And I guarantee that your response and my response will be, Father, you're so good. You're only ever good. And I'm sorry I ever doubted you. I'm sorry I ever doubted you. As a believer... As a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, you and I need to reconcile. We need to make peace with the reality that this life is the smallest part of eternity. The smallest, most minuscule part. And we've got to settle that. We've got to embrace that. We've got to understand that. And then live our lives understanding that Jesus is the one who has the full picture and we can trust him to be good. Verse four, Jesus keeps speaking and he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your earthly life is your day. It's your day. It's your time to do the work of your father in heaven. Your day, your earthly life is going to end one day. And when it does, your time to live for the Lord in faith is going to be over. There's gonna be stuff to do in eternity, but this is the only chance we have to live by faith, to honor God with faith, because faith isn't really required when Jesus is standing right over there and you can just look and see him. Faith isn't gonna be needed in eternity because we're gonna see and know everything. But this is the only chance we have to live by faith, to honor God, to invest in our eternity. And Jesus is saying, you got to make it count. This is the only chance you get. So write this down. Day equals earthly life. Day equals earthly life. So don't say, once I finish college, then I'll get really serious about serving the Lord. Don't say, once I get married, I'll get really serious about serving the Lord. Well, once we have kids, once I make manager at the company, well, once the house is paid off, once the kids have all moved out, well, when I'm retired... Everybody has their day, their earthly life. None of us knows how long it's gonna be. But here's what we do know. It's the only time we have to honor God and serve God by faith. And it's gonna affect how our eternity plays out. For the believer, now, today, is the time to be serious about serving the Lord. Let's read verse five. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, then underline, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So make a note of this. Jesus is the only hope for a world in darkness. 
Jesus is the only hope for a world in darkness. He's the one we are born unable to see, and he's the one who brings and gives illumination to everything. He's the one who reveals truth, what it is, and what the meaning of life is. Without Jesus, no one can truly see anything. Like the blind man, you and I are born unable to see Jesus. We're born in darkness, unaware of who he is and unaware of our need for him. In verse six, it says, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. You see, you can do that sort of thing when someone's blind because they don't see it coming. Uh, we can try to make this prettier than it was by saying, I've heard guys try to say things like, oh, you know, it's like getting a mud facial at a spa. But it wasn't. This is gritty sand. He literally spat and took sand and then rubbed it on the guy's eyes. And even though he was blind, that would have been incredibly itchy and unpleasant. We all know what it's like to have sand in your eyes and it's horrible. So Jesus puts this irritant in this man's eyes. Verse seven, and then he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent, the pool of scent. You see, water is very, very important in the Bible. And generally, whenever water is used to wash, it's a picture of the word of God. And whenever water is used to drink, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to use an irritant to make you go and wash in a very specific way. I want you to go wash yourself in the word. You're being sent to the word so that you can be healed. And as we know in Jesus, the Bible says the word became flesh. You see, almost without fail, God has to move you and I toward him. He has to use irritants to make us grow or to get us to him. And if you meet someone who becomes a believer as an adult, their testimony will almost inevitably be this negative thing started happening in my life and it made me realize that I needed God. It made me open to Jesus for the first time and that's how I found Jesus. We generally say people find God one of three ways, through tension, trouble, or transition. There's tension, there's tension in a marriage, there's stress, there's trouble, there's a loss of a job, there's a, a sickness, or there's transition. A loved one dies or passes away and, and life changes very quickly. How often do you or I face the choice in life of going around irritated, bitter, angry, or washing ourselves in the word of God and once again finding peace, remembering what God is doing and standing on what he promised? This was a doubly strange instruction as there would have been pitchers of water all over Jerusalem, all over the city, even within a few yards of where they were standing when Jesus gave this instruction. And if they needed a pool, the pool of Bethesda was much closer to them than the pool of Siloam. So Jesus is actually asking this man to go to the other side of the city to go and wash his eyes. So why does he tell him specifically to go to the pool of Siloam? Well, I want to explain it to you, and if you love the Bible, you'll find this fascinating. If you don't, this will probably be five minutes you'll never get back. Here we go. So the name of the pool meant scent, and I think that's important because that's part of the picture that God was painting through the story, but it goes even deeper than that. In the Old Testament, some of you will be familiar with the name Shiloh. Shiloh was one of the names in the Old Testament that was used to speak about the coming Messiah who we know is and was Jesus. He would be called by this name Shiloh as one of his names in the Old Testament. I put it on your outline and for example in Genesis 49 it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from beneath his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So that tells us this Shiloh is gonna be a person, not a place or a thing, and ultimately he's going to rule the earth. We know that that didn't happen during Jesus' first coming, but it will happen in his second coming when he reigns in Jerusalem for the millennium. And then also on your outline, Isaiah prophesied, inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. And that's a reference to Shiloh, to Jesus being rejected during his first coming. Well, when the Romans started ruling the known world, Greek became the language du jour, the language of the day, and everyone even around Israel would have been generally familiar with Greek. And when they translated the name Shiloh into Greek, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, which is known as the Greek Septuagint, they translated Shiloh as Siloam. And all of that is to point that this had to be this specific pool because this pool is named after Messiah 
who is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is sending him to go and wash, to go and wash in the word, to go and wash in him and through him and be made clean through him. So understand what's going on here. This blind man, even at this point, has no idea who Jesus is. But he has to have enough faith to believe Jesus can heal him. Because if he doesn't believe that Jesus can heal him, what is he going to do? He's simply going to go to the nearest pitcher of water and get the sand out of his eyes and have that relief. For him to journey all the way to the other side of the city, he has to have already decided within himself, I believe this man can heal me if I do what he says. He has to have the faith to stumble, to ask for directions, and to make his way to the much further pool of Siloam while his eyes have sand in them. And that's exactly what he's going to do. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That's telling us that we're saved through faith in Jesus, but not only that, the faith that we need to have to believe in Jesus, even that faith comes from God. It's a gift from God. And that's what we're seeing at work here in the life of this blind man. He's been given the gift of faith by God supernaturally. We're not saved by anything we do. We're saved by believing in Jesus. Keep reading. It says, so he went and washed, underline washed, and came back seeing, underline seeing. It's incredible. And the first thing I want us to notice is that this man was not receiving something that he had lost. He was not receiving something he once had. He was receiving something he had never had before. He was born blind. He had never known sight. And so too, when you and I receive salvation, we are receiving something brand new, something we have never had before. We're not getting something back. We're getting something brand new. That's why the Bible calls it being born again. It's something brand new. This is so profound as it relates to you and I. Write this down. He was healed by following the instructions of Jesus, not by doing what was best in his opinion. He was healed by following the instructions of Jesus, not by doing what was best in his opinion. You see, this man never would have been healed if he had said, I know Jesus said the pool of Siloam, but the pool of Bethesda is much closer, and a pool is a pool. Bethesda resonates with my spirit and and seems like what's best to me. So too, there's only one way to be saved. It's through Jesus. In John 14, Jesus himself will famously say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4, Peter will address the religious leaders in Jerusalem and say this, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, we don't get to choose how we enter a relationship with God. There's only one way, having our sins forgiven through faith in Jesus. We must follow the instructions of Jesus if we're going to have our spiritual blindness healed. This man went and washed just as we need to repent and have our sins forgiven. And he came back seeing just as our eyes are opened when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives upon salvation. It's an amazing, amazing thing. In verse 8 we read, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? So write this down and we'll talk about it. Those around the man noticed a change in his life. They noticed a change in his life. It was obvious. You see, this wasn't a private healing. He was a completely different person. And it's always concerning when someone says, I found Jesus, I found the Lord, but they don't want to talk about it with anybody. Somebody says, oh, I heard you became a Christian, and they say, well, that's just a personal thing. You see, what happened when this blind man gained his sight, and people said, Weren't you the blind man? He doesn't say, well, you know, my my healing is sort of a personal issue. I I don't really want to talk about it. He said, yeah, yeah, I was him. Verse 9, we'll read on, and it says, some said, this is he. Others said, no, he's like him. It's just a guy who looks like him. But he said, I am he. So write this down. He was willing to publicly confirm that he had been healed. He was willing to publicly confirm that he had been healed. When people asked for clarification, he stepped up and confirmed, yes, indeed, I was blind, but now I see. Jesus has healed me. So too, any believer must not be ashamed of their healer, Jesus. 
We would say that if clarification is needed, we need to be willing to share that we are indeed a follower of Jesus, a Christian. Verse 10, therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? Four times in this chapter, we're gonna hear this question, how, 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 how? And isn't that how we're all wired? Tell me how, tell me the steps, tell me the procedure, tell me what do I need to obey? You see, they had already had over 2,000 years of failure trying to be made whole, trying to be right with God by following laws and procedures. They couldn't do it. See, it wasn't about a how, it was about a who. It wasn't about a procedure, it was about a person. And the same is true today, the who, the person, was Jesus Christ. It's not a how, it's a who. In verse 11, he answered and said, underline a man, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. So make a note of this, he was willing to share his testimony when God gave him opportunity. He was willing to share his testimony. When he was asked to confirm that he was a Christian, he said, yes, I am. And when they asked him for more information, he was willing to share his story. And when you read this, would you agree this is not a super crafted, eloquent answer? He doesn't say, you know, picture the scene. It's a dusty rural village. And a baby cries out as her mother is in the pains of childbirth. He doesn't say that. This is what an unashamed answer looks like. He just shares the facts. He said, this is what Jesus told me to do. I did it. And I was healed. And when people ask why we're a Christian or how we became a Christian, our job is simply to tell them the truth. We don't need to try and frame it in a way that's going to dazzle them or convince them or in a way that we think they will find cool and relatable. We just need to tell the truth, tell the facts. Interesting side note, we know that Jesus spat and made the clay, but this man leaves out the spitting part. Do you know why? Because he didn't see him do it. He didn't see him do it. It's a very small detail that adds to the veracity, the credibility of the man's story. Because if you said Jesus spat and made clay, they could say, well, how do you know that he spat? He felt the clay on his eyes, but he didn't see Jesus spit. Verse 12, then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. These are the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. And this probably would have taken place somewhere around the Temple Mount area. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again, how, 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 how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Once again, he just shares the facts. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So write this down. Not everyone appreciated the man's changed life. Not everyone appreciated the man's changed life. Not everyone was excited about the change. Not everyone shared in his joy. Some immediately tried to tear him down. Their accusation was that the Sabbath, Saturday, was a day of rest, which it was. It was a law given by God in the Ten Commandments. And their interpretation of the law was you can't heal somebody because that counts as work. It's a holy day of rest. You may remember this is the same accusation we talked about last week that they lobbied at Jesus after he healed the woman who had been sick for 18 years. And Jesus responded to that accusation by reminding the religious leaders there that they untied their animals and walked them to water on the Sabbath because they knew that they needed to drink on the Sabbath. Not doing that would be cruel. And he said, if, if that's justifiable on the Sabbath, don't you think it's justifiable to heal a woman who's been sick for 18 years? If you're gonna be kind to your animals, I, I can't be kind to this woman. You see, Jesus's point was not, well, you sin on the Sabbath too. His point was, you understand that being kind to your animals is something God would still want you to do on the Sabbath. Why can't you understand that healing somebody is something God would still wanna do on the Sabbath? You see, Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath to heal the woman, for we know that Jesus never sinned, which means he never broke the Sabbath. He perfectly fulfilled the law, and he simply pointed out that the religious leaders were completely misinterpreting the law of the Sabbath. But here are the Pharisees in Jerusalem going with the same logic and accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath by healing someone. Others said, 
Well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Some of the Pharisees were rational enough to say, well, if this guy's a sinner, then why would God give him the power to heal a blind man on the Sabbath or any other day? It doesn't make sense. How can this Jesus be a sinner? You see, in their almost karma system, it wouldn't make sense that someone sinning would have the power to heal a blind man. Verse 17, they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, underline this, he is a prophet. He's saying it's obvious to me that he's someone who's been sent by God. He's obviously been empowered by God because he healed my blindness. How else could he do that? We're already starting to see this movement. First, Jesus was a man called Jesus, but now this man has been following Jesus for probably five minutes, and his theological understanding's grown, so now he understands that Jesus is a prophet. We can see the movement happening here. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight, and they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. Now they're not giving attitude to these Pharisees. This should have been one of the happiest days of his parents' lives. Should have been one of the happiest days, but it wasn't. We're gonna see why. You see, the parents were more afraid than they were awestruck. A man was considered of age when he turned 30. That's how we know this man was at least 30 years old. Verse 22, we'll find out why his parents were afraid. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. When it says the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leaders. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You see, the Jewish leaders hated Jesus so much, they've been plotting to kill him for about over a year by this point in the life of Jesus. And they had let it be known throughout Jerusalem, anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, is going to be excommunicated for the synagogue. And you might remember, this doesn't just mean, hey, you can't come to services on Saturday. Jewish religion was so woven with the culture. To this day, Judaism is the only religion that's also an ethnicity. To be Jewish is both a faith and an ethnicity. The two were woven together so intimately. So if you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were cut off from your own people in every part of life. It means you're persona non grata. Nobody who is Jewish is to eat with you or socialize with you. They're not to do business with you or employ you. They're to treat you as an outcast. If you're married, your spouse is required to divorce you. It's a big deal. And the parents of this blind man were terrified. So what they're really saying is our son's a grown man. You don't need to involve us. Just ask him. So keep in mind that everybody, including the blind man, keep this in mind, understands what the cost is going to be of publicly saying, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. They understand that the cost is going to be excommunication, being an outcast in Jewish society. Verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Give God the glory is just their way of saying, tell the truth, basically. For you Bible students who want the obscure reference, it's a reference to Joshua 17 when Joshua is interviewing and questioning Achan. Some of you will remember that story. What they're doing is they're asking this man to publicly say, say Jesus is a sinner. We know Jesus is a sinner. Agree with us publicly. Tell the truth. Verse 25, he answered and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And I love this because he's saying, Guys, I'm not a theologian. I can't answer your theological questions. Somebody comes to you after you give your life to the Lord and you say, well, how do you deal with the fact that there is a plurality of faiths and a sincere amount of belief from people who have never heard the gospel? And he just says, I I don't know. I, I just know that Jesus has saved me and I've never been the same since that happened. I'm just telling you the facts of what happened to me. I, I was born blind, but now I see and Whether I understand it or not on a theological and philosophical level, it doesn't change the fact that it happened to me. You see, no one, write this down, no one can refute a personal testimony. No one can refute a 
personal testimony. When you say, Jesus has come into my life and, and he's changed me and set me free in a way I've never known before. Nobody can say, no, he hasn't. You're like, well, I know because it happened to me. That's how I know. Your testimony, what God has done for you, what God has done in you, what God has done through you, what God has done in spite of you is the most powerful thing you have to share with people. You may not be the world's best apologist able to explain why Christianity is true on a philosophical or esoteric level, but you can share what Jesus has done for you and nobody can take that away from you. Verse 26, they said to him again, what did he do to you? How? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And notice how great this is. You can see this man's becoming more bold. Do you also want to become his disciples? It's hilarious because you just can't imagine how, how much that must have incensed these Pharisees. But it's also moving because notice this. This man doesn't say, do you want to become his disciples? He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, do you also, also want to become his disciples? Implying what? That he considered himself a disciple of Jesus. And he's saying it in front of the Pharisees, knowing full well what that is going to mean. You see, he's just found something in Jesus that means more to him than his fear of what the Pharisees can do to him. It's more real, it's more meaningful, and it's more valuable to him than what the Pharisees can do to him. It doesn't mean he's not scared. It just means what he's found in Jesus is worth more to him, and it overrides his fear. Verse 28, predictable response, then they reviled him, underline reviled him. And you're going to find too that sometimes as you share your testimony of what Jesus has done for you, there's going to be an illogical reaction. Some people will just hate you for it. They'll just hate you for it. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. But the man knows he's got these guys cornered with basic logic, and he's not going to let them off the hook. So verse 30, the man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where he's from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. You guys say this all the time. But if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, underline since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. See, he's using their own logic on them. He's saying, this is interesting that you don't know where this guy is from, but here he is doing something nobody's ever been able to do before. And we know, as you always say, God doesn't hear sinners. So how did he do this? How did he let me see when I was born blind? So write this down. Until Jesus intervened, nobody had ever been able to find healing for their blindness. Until Jesus intervened, nobody had ever been able to find healing for their blindness. There had been thousands of years since the fall of man in the garden, since sin entered the world. And all of man's attempts to get right with God had failed. You see, what we need today as well, only Jesus can offer us. Only Jesus can offer us. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, this is the blind man speaking, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And now we're gonna see what happens when logic fails. What happens when logic fails? Well, people turn to ridicule. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you're teaching us and they cast him out. So write this down. Instead of examining themselves and recognizing their own need for healing, they accused the man of being judgmental. Instead of saying, man, this guy's telling the truth. Do I need to be healed too? Instead, they accuse him of being judgmental. And I want you to notice this. You can go back and read the whole story. There is nothing the blind man says that could ever be construed as being judgmental. He doesn't say anything about them except that you teach this and Jesus is healing me. He says nothing that can be construed as judgmental. So what's going on? Well, through this man, the Holy Spirit is beginning to convict these religious leaders and they don't like it. And so instead of recognizing the Holy Spirit, what they tell themselves is, 
you know, I'm actually only feeling convicted because this guy's being judgmental. That's what this feeling is that I'm having. I don't like it, and so I'm going to get rid of it by blaming it on this guy being judgmental. Some of you have found this to be true already in life, and a lot of you are going to find this to be true. When you share about your faith, there will be those whose only response will be to accuse you of being judgmental. You think you're better than me? You think you can talk down to me? Even if all you've shared is, this is what Jesus has done for me. I was lost and I was broken and he made me whole. You're being judgmental. Even when you've said nothing about them. And what's going on is the same thing with them. The the Holy Spirit is convicting them and they don't like it. And so they're going to blame what the Holy Spirit is doing on you. Instead of listening to the Holy Spirit. Let me also say this. God help us to stay teachable as we grow older. God help us to remember that the Lord may have something to teach us even through a brand new believer, even through a child. May we never fall into the place of hard-heartedness where we say, I've seen it all, I've heard it all, because the moment we get there, we're telling God, you don't need to say anything new. I've heard it all. And we're shutting him off and Part of what happened to these Pharisees is they had reached that place. Oh, I I don't need to be taught. I'm the teacher. I'm not the student anymore. And that hard-heartedness robbed them of what God wanted to do in their life. You know, however old you are, however long you've been in the church, God has something new to teach you. He has a new thing to share with you about himself. He's inexhaustible. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when they found him, He said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? So this man hasn't just been thrown out the synagogue. He's been excommunicated. He's been socially outcast. And if there was ever a moment where he may have been thinking, have I made a huge mistake? This would be the moment. Most of his friends are gone. His family has essentially disowned him. And if there ever was a moment where he's thinking, oh, oh man, did I just get a little overexcited about being healed and do something really stupid, this would be the moment. And in that moment, look who shows up. Look who finds him, Jesus. And Jesus asked the man, hey, do you believe that God really is gonna send a Messiah? Do you believe that Shiloh is really going to come one day? Verse 36, the blind man answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Underline Lord. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? You see, he has enough reverence for Jesus at this point to assume that Jesus knows who the Son of God is, that he can point this man to him. And he realizes that God has been kind to him. And so he's eager to believe. And when he calls Jesus Lord here, it's the Greek word kairios. It's a word that can be used with multiple meanings. And in this case, he's using it as called a title of honor, expressive of respect and reverence with which servants greet their master. He's like calling him sir. He's calling him master. Do you believe in the Son of God? Who is he, Lord? Underline Lord, that I may believe in him. Verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, And it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Underline that Lord in verse 38 because he's using that word kairios again, but now he's using it a different way. He's using it as in God or Messiah. And what's incredible about this chapter is we see this man's progressive growing understanding of who Jesus is. He gets more and more revelation And he grows in his view of Jesus through this chapter. See, the question is always, how do you get more revelation of Jesus? Well, you respond to the revelation that he's already given you. Those who are willing to receive revelation always receive more. Those who reject revelation never receive more. Those who welcome light get more light. Those who reject light receive only darkness. In verse 11, Jesus was a man. In verse 17, Jesus was a prophet. In verse 36, he was Lord as in master. And when we reach verse 38, Jesus is Lord as in God. It wasn't having a full understanding of who Jesus is that allowed this man to be saved. It was responding to the revelation he received that allowed him to be saved. You see, he didn't resist when Jesus put the mud in his eyes. He followed Jesus' instructions to go to the pool of Siloam. He didn't lie or keep what Jesus had done for him a secret. 
Every step of the way, he responded with faith to the revelation he received. So too, when someone becomes a believer, they don't understand everything about Jesus right away. Well, none of us do. They may have a shockingly small amount of understanding. It may be months before they even understand that Jesus is actually the only way to be saved. But what do we see straight away in this man? We see a change that was noticeable by other people. And we share that he was willing to be open and honest about what Jesus had done for him. And he was willing to follow his healer, even if it cost him his social circle, if it cost him his friends, if it cost him his job, if it cost him even the love of his parents. He was willing to follow his healer. You see, it's not understanding everything about God that lets you take your next step with him. It's responding to the revelation he's given you right now. You can still have questions. You can still be confused by some things. But what Jesus is looking for is people who will say yes to him right now where they're at. The rest is a journey that's going to unfold over time. Verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. You see, this is the double-edged sword of salvation. Jesus has come into the world to offer us forgiveness. That's the good news. Therefore, if he's given us that opportunity, also true is the fact that those who reject Jesus are willingly choosing to remain unforgiven. That's the bad news. There can't be forgiveness offered without there being a consequence for rejecting that forgiveness. Verse 40, then some of the Pharisees who were with him, they understand what he's saying, heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. See, these Pharisees would not recognize that they needed to be forgiven. They wouldn't recognize that they too needed to be healed. And because they would not recognize their need for Jesus, they reached the place where they could not recognize their needs for Jesus. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Those who refuse to believe are on a dangerous path of reaching the point where they become unable to believe. Write this down, it's your last fill-in. We will never be healed until we recognize our need for healing. We'll never be healed until we recognize our need for healing. This isn't even a spiritual principle. If you go to AA or any type of recovery, the, the first step is admitting you have a problem, you need help. And we can't receive help from God till we recognize that we need it. So the obvious conclusion we reach after reading through John 9 is that we all need healing. We all need our sins forgiven. We all need to be saved. And if you're in the place of the Pharisees today where you're thinking, I don't need healing. I don't need forgiveness. I'm a good person. I plead with you to change your mind. I beg you to change your mind because you're blind right now. You're in darkness. And if you've found forgiveness through Jesus, then make sure you take communion in the coming time of prayer and worship. Thank God for what he's done for you, how he reached out to you, how he healed you, how he went all the way to get to you. He initiated everything. You initiated nothing. Don't leave today without saying thank you to Jesus for your salvation. You can wrestle with this last point and see if the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you. Because I can't help noticing that this principle applies to more than salvation. If there is an area of your life or my life where we need healing, but we refuse to acknowledge it before the Lord, we will not be healed. We will not be healed. We can't be healed. If there's an issue in our marriage, but we refuse to own up to our part in it, then we're limiting the power of God in our lives, his ability to heal us. If there's an issue at work, at school, in a friendship or an addiction or a pattern of destruction in an area of our lives, we are limiting God's work in our lives when we refuse to acknowledge that we have an issue that we need healing for. We're going to pray in a moment and as we do that, as we worship in this coming time, would you just ask the Lord to shine a light on any area of your life where you may be blind, where you may be in darkness and determine that if there is such an area, you're going to follow the Lord's instructions. You're going to be washed. You're going to be healed through the word of God, through Jesus, through his blood, if that's what it takes to be made whole. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I want to ask each of us to allow the Lord to illuminate any area of our lives where we may be unwilling to acknowledge that we need healing. 
And maybe today is the time for us to be broken before the Lord and just admit, God, you're the only one that can heal me. You're the only one that can bring restoration to this area of my life. You're the only one that can bring wholeness to this relationship. And God, I need you. I need you to move in my life. And just as your eyes are closed, I want to read you Psalm 27 as a meditation while you pray. Because this psalm fits perfectly with John 9. It's the confession and testimony and song of the blind man made whole. And it's our testimony too. Orphans made into sons and daughters of the living God. This is what Psalm 27 says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell, just like the Pharisees before the testimony of the healed man. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's where he met Jesus. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed. That I would see the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say. Wait on the Lord. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the story of what you have done in each of our lives. That we didn't bring anything to the table. You were the one who opened our eyes. You were the one who gave us the faith to believe. And all we've done is say, yes, everything you've said is true. We need you. We're lost without you. You're our only hope, Lord God. And Lord, we're here this morning to confess that that is as true today as it was on the day that you saved us. We're still lost without you. We're still hopeless without you. We still need you so desperately, God. We still rely on your mercy and your grace and your kindness every day. And Lord, you are faithful to not leave us, to not forsake us. You're the lifter of our heads. You're the one who guides our steps. You're a shield about us. You're a strong tower of refuge. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Our testimony is nothing more than we have found goodness and grace that we did not deserve in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.